0: Alright, welcome to the QTR Podcast. Today is September 8th, 2022. How the hell is everybody? This podcast, like all of my podcasts, brought to you by my patrons and my longtime supporters who I love, who you should check out, who I'm going to shout out right now. First and foremost, my friends over at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver provider, the only place that I order my gold and silver bullion from. I love J.M. Bullion. They've been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They turn around orders very quickly. They ship discreetly and QTR podcast listeners have their own helper there, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Shoot her an email. If you have any questions about buying bullion or any questions in general, she would be happy to help you out. And of course, you can always go on the website. They have tons of inventory, uh, and I just think they do a great job in general. I love JM Bullion. The link is in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Chris McIntosh and Lynn Alden and Brent Johnson to help you preserve your wealth in a world of out of control central banks. Nothing says we're going crazy like losing 10% of your purchasing power every single year. But with inflation nowadays, that's exactly what's going on. So George has dedicated his channel, Rebel Capitalist, on YouTube, his channel, George Gammon, on YouTube, and his wonderful uh, product, Rebel Capitalist Pro, ...to helping you solve those problems. And uh, it's just a wonderful resource. George is an exceptionally smart dude. They cover a lot of ground, and for people that have an Austrian kind of skeptical lens on markets, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful resource. It really is. Uh, George is a great guy... He would love to give you a trial, help you out in any way possible. If you go over there, just tell him QTR sent you. He'll make sure that you get taken care of. This podcast is also brought to you by my longtime friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. I want to shout you guys out. The Steam Room, a wonderful piece of software that helps you track flow in the markets, usually led by options. These guys were the originators of the Unusual Options Activity the Steam Room is a wonderful piece of software. It's aesthetically beautiful. It's functional. They've been working on it for about 10 years now. Wall Street Jesus was one of the original gangsters of calling out unusual options activity. Now it seems like everybody does it. These guys were the first, and they were the first for a reason. They know this shit better than anybody else. Give Lucci and Wall Street Jesus a shout. Those links are in my podcast description if you want to try out the Steam Room. Uh, I'm sure they'll give you a free trial if you tell them that QTR is Sent to you this podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Doomberg, one of my favorite sub stacks. The Doomberg Substack is linked in my podcast description. a great resource for anybody, really experts on energy and commodities, but they tend to look at the markets the same way that we do uh, through the same uh, kind of Austrian lens. and uh, just a wonderful read. Doomberg's one of those sub stacks that every time they publish, I read whatever they write top to bottom. Uh, and finally, this podcast brought to you by my patrons—people like Jay Mintsmeier, my friends over at Investors Live, my buddy Russ Valenti, my friend Max Mulvihill—that's been with me forever. Everybody that continues to support the podcast on Patreon, and those of you that support me on my Substack, Fringe Finance. If you like the podcast, check out my Substack, Fringe Finance. Uh, I am curating content almost daily there, uh, and happy to. Have you guys on and have discussions in the comments and uh, just loving that everybody uh, <clears throat> everybody that's supporting me on my Substack. I appreciate that shit very much. Link to that is also in the podcast description. All right, let's get started today. First note obviously has nothing to do... Well, not obviously. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Nothing that I say or do ever should be construed as financial advice Generally, I get things wrong, and I am an idiot. So, uh, with that being said, if you choose to, uh, you know, mimic anything I do, then it's your own ass. I don't want to hear about it. Talk to a financial professional if you have problems. Talk to a therapist if you don't feel well, folks. You got to delegate these things. I can't be fielding phone calls and emails and direct messages all day. I got other shit I want to do. You know, with my life. Not much, so. <clears> though. <throat> Anyways, hello. What have I been doing over the last 24 hours? I've been watching the unfolding drama in the chess world. I am, I wouldn't even say I'm a novice in the world of chess. I would say I am uh, a fucking, like, bystander. (laughs) I am so bad at chess, but I've been playing for about three or four years now. And uh, shortly after I started jiu-jitsu, which was, like, shit, almost five years ago now, uh, I started playing chess, and uh, and I just love it. I've fallen in love with it. You know, I'm terrible at it, but I like studying it. I like, uh, you know. Obviously, I had Agamator on the podcast uh, back. I think episode 172 or something. I'm just making shit up off the top of my head. That was like one of my favorite interviews. I've invited him to come back on. Uh, haven't heard back from him, which I I understand. He's just kicking ass. His channel has like think over a million subscribers now just fucking murdering it the guy's a total chess genius and uh, well I don't know really know what the point is other than I've been watching this drama unfold here with uh, Magnus Carlson withdrawing from this tournament in St. Louis and you're gonna have to forgive me if you're like a fucking grandmaster or something and you're listening to this I'm gonna get a whole bunch of shit wrong. So I'm just apologizing in advance. And uh, if you tuned in for finance, sorry, because I'm talking about chess here, Uh, at least to begin with. So uh, Carlson withdraws from this tournament after losing to this guy Hans Neiman, who uh, apparently, uh, you know, got caught cheating, not during the tournament, but when he was like 12 and 16 years old on chess.com they uh they caught him cheating i guess like using an engine or something he says it was because he wanted to get his ranking up so he could play higher ranked players whatever it was years ago he copped to it he admitted it he talked about it a day or two ago but uh so and you know he he's a respectable chess player he's rated like 2600 uh you know obviously knows his shit he's better than 99.99% of people on earth um but you know grandmasters are a different breed they can kind of uh you know there's different levels of incredible greatness in chess uh that us the holy shit hang on there's something on the ceiling i gotta go kill it look at this fucking thing oh oh my god i gotta bring the fucking chair over because hang on you gotta bear with me here for a second chair back over bring the chair back over that's good that killed about a minute is the podcast over yet okay so uh anyways this dude plays carlson in this uh chess tournament in st louis it was a silverfish one of those big fuckers and i got a white ceiling so it stood out you know it was like halfway across the room and i could see it from here uh, so Neiman fucking beats Carlson in this tournament, right? They're they're playing a uh, in person game, not a chess dot com game. They're playing an in person tournament, and Neiman beats him, and uh, Carlson fucking withdraws from the tournament after the game, and everybody, and he doesn't say why, and he puts this mysterious message up that like, oh, you know, I can't talk about it, whatever. So immediately everybody starts speculating that Carlson thinks that this dude Neiman may have been cheating. The two big speculations that I've read online uh, were, one, that Carlson thought he was cheating, uh, thought he was cheating, and the second was maybe he got Carlson's uh, opening prep. In other words, maybe somebody from Carlson's team or somehow this guy got access to the uh, chess opening that Carlson was going to use and that he was kind of able to prepare, um, you know, basically go down all the different chess lines from that opening and prepare himself accordingly for the match. So maybe he had some kind of an edge. And so uh, what you saw after Carlson withdrew was they took this guy Neiman and they fucking ran him through security and they ran him through the metal detector and they used like a little i don't know like a little rfid uh finder you know like scanning it by his ear to see if he had like an earpiece in or or whatever and they they bring out the wand and they're like wanding him you know like he's going through airport security right and they don't find anything and so there's no evidence that this dude cheated at all yet you know a couple of their chess grandmasters uh, Hikaru, Nikam- Nakamura. H- Hikaru Nakamura, Hikaru Nakamura, Hikaru Nakamura, this fucking guy, what's his name, his first name's Hikaru, Nakamura, sorry, Hikaru Nakamura, who, by the way, I like this dude's, uh, his, uh, stream, his YouTube and his Instagram, it's cool, he, it's incredible how many, you know, how many different lines these guys see, chess lines, combinations of pieces They can see it once, seven, eight, nine lines, and they're looking six, seven, eight moves ahead, which is why I constantly get my nuts kicked in by the chess hustler in Rittenhouse Square. Um, And, you know, I could call him a friend of mine, I think, at this point. He's taught me a ton. But uh, it's just about seeing, you know, X amount of moves ahead. So uh, Nakamura takes to YouTube and does this big, long stream after what happened and kind of speculates that Magnus had withdrawn because he thought Neiman was cheating. Um, and now, mind you, Magnus hasn't said anything at all. And there's been no evidence that this dude Neiman cheating, uh, at least, you know, in this tournament. So then Neiman goes out and and Nakamura also, like, analyzes his play. They analyze the game, so they run it back on, like, a digital chessboard and they're talking about all the different positions. And, um, you know, it just uh, Nakamura, I think, thought that he saw some irregularities in, in Neiman's play. I don't know if it was irregularities, if he thought that, you know, he had done something that was, uh, uh, I don't know. When Agadmator Agedmort- uh, was running the running the game back, There, there's one point, uh, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 moves in where Neiman does make a decisive move, I think, with his queen. And Agadmator says, you know, it is, in fact, the top move recommended by the engine – you know, the chess engine, the computer. Um, and I'm not sure if it was like the most obvious at the time. So there's one spot in the game where, you know, they kind of are asking about his play. Of course, you know, me watching this from the outside in without the commentary of these guys, I have no fucking clue what I'm looking at, but, uh, so anyways, then Neiman comes on and he does this interview last night on uh, on a live stream where he's basically like defending himself, you know, saying, I beat him fair and square and nobody's heard from Carlson in like two days. So while Magnus shuts up and Hans, you know, gave his interview, but I think at the end of it said, you know, the chess will speak for itself. I have nothing more to say. You know, I didn't cheat. I just beat him legit. Um, And so while these two are kind of in this stalemate to make a terrible chess pun, uh, the whole kind of chess world is... Up in arms. It's this is like a big fucking like thing of drama. You know, chess is one of those things where everybody shakes hands, everybody wears a nice blazer when they sit down. So you know, some guy sneezes at the chess table. That's like a huge piece of chess news. This is like a monstrous fucking piece of news in the chess world because it involves the world's you know top ranked player uh, losing a match to I think uh, I think Neiman's like barely cracks the top fifty. I think he's in the top fifty. This uh, this game put Neiman's rating, I think, uh, into the 2700s from into the 2600s. So he stole some, stole a fair amount of points from uh, Carlson because of the difference in the two's rating. So uh, in the Grandmaster world, a pr- pretty big upset, I guess. Um, so I've been immersed in that, just kind of waiting to see what the hell is going to happen next. I invited this guy Neiman on the podcast. Uh, I shot him a tweet the other day, and then also I shot him an email to his business email saying, hey, you want to come in and talk about it, but you know I can't imagine he would want to come on because I don't know anything about chess, so I'm you know I'm useless when it comes to analyzing all the little uh, bits and pieces. Other than I can say it looks as though he's being accused of cheating without any evidence, which to me is uh, is interesting because if he did beat Carlson Fair and Square, the whole chess world is doing this fucking guy dirty, and I think Chess.com like revoked his account. Or something, you know, and that's where all these Grandmasters all play. They all play on chess.com and Lee Chess, those are the two biggest uh chess sites. So, chess.com's like doing this dude dirty, the whole chess world's doing the dude dirty. Everybody wants to back up Carlson, which is great. I love Magnus Carlson. I watch his fucking videos all the time. He's a stud. Um, but it's like, what if this dude didn't cheat and just beat him legitimately? You know, the whole fucking world's gonna owe this dude an apology. Having said that, I'm sure that Carlson wouldn't have just withdrawn. You know, you could lose the game and not withdraw from the tournament, um, but he just withdrew completely, and so people are speculating. All right, like, does it have anything to do with his? Uh, you know, maybe he doesn't feel well. Maybe there was a death in the family, whatever. But he hasn't said anything in like two days, so the chess world is uh, is going crazy. And if you're a uh, if you're a novice chess player, an outside observer like I am. Uh, Interesting stuff that has taken my mind off of the world of uh, the markets for, you know, a couple of minutes. Plus, we got NFL football starting up. So lots of other things going on. However, there are plenty of market-related items that I want to talk to. And now that I have wasted 15 minutes of your time talking about an obscure thing that happened in the chess world that likely nobody cares about, uh, let's talk about finance. So we got a lot to talk about. The market is, for the most part, holding up still, which is a huge surprise to me. Um, The Qs, the QQQ, which is pretty much how I watch the NASDAQ for the most part, the Qs were still bumming around the 300 level over the last couple of days, which is fascinating to me given the insane valuations on uh, tech stocks still. And those of you that read my substack know that, you know, the two ways that I've been valuing the market for the most part have been through a market cap to GDP lens and also, uh, you know, via the Schiller price to earnings ratio. And both of those gauges uh, are still way historically over where their uh, means would be, uh, not even talking about a, uh, you know, their trough, where their trough would be. Uh, just their historical averages. Um, Just to revert to the historical averages based on these indicators, the market could come down 20, 30, 40 percent, which, by the way, I think is going to happen. I'm going to talk about that. Um, I think it's going to happen because I think that interest rate hikes are happening too much too quickly. I mean, Look, with the amount of debt that we have outstanding, any hikes in interest rates over any period of time uh, are going to be devastating. Uh, But to hike rates, you know, we'll be going up close to three percent here soon over the course of just probably about eight months is a very, very quick uh, and accelerated way to raise rates. Now, for context, I've written about this a bunch of times. Leading up to the December 2018 crash, uh, you know, when Powell eventually capitulated and said he was going to lower rates again, we were raising, I think, a quarter point, um, you know, uh, at a time. And we were doing that consistently for, I don't know, a couple of years. And so the the move up to that breaking point in the stock market was very gradual. The market had a lot of time. To digest all of the quarter uh, basis point, uh, quarter percent moves, the 25 basis point moves um, individually. And then eventually you got to this point where the lagging kind of effects on the credit markets met uh, reality. And in December 2018, the market crashed, you know, heading into the holidays. And then Powell eventually capitulated and, and started to cut rates again. Um, I think that we're in for it way worse than December 2018. We have more debt outstanding. I understand there's more liquidity now because of all the QE that took place in 2020. But you have to keep in mind now we have hiked and we will have hiked, you know, after this month, 300 basis points in the span of just, you know, eight months, uh, which is you know, if we were moving at the old pace, uh, there's a huge difference between the two. And so I think that there's still a fair amount of shock that the credit markets are gonna feel from these rate hikes. I saw mortgage rates this morning were at their highest, I think since 2008, um, well over 5%, heading towards 6%. Uh, These things are all going to have an effect on the economy. The problem is they don't happen right away. It's not like Powell turns the dial and, you know, he hikes rates and that day everybody figures out, holy shit, you know, our cost of doing business is going up. We need to deleverage immediately. Now, bills happen on a month to month basis. Sometimes they happen on a quarter to quarter basis. Sometimes they even happen. They, they, they readjust on an annual basis. Um, but as, you know, those types of bills start to eventually eat away at people's savings a little bit more, eat away at their uh, recurring income a little bit more. Over the course of a couple of months or a couple of quarters, then people start to tighten their belts a little bit. Then, you know, discretionary spending goes down a little bit. And then all of a sudden, everybody realizes, hey, you know, we're going to have to deleverage. We're going to have to tighten our belts here a little bit. Things are going to get a little fucky. Things are going to get a little uncomfortable. Then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In that snowball... Rolling down the hill, the recessionary deleveraging snowball. I still think that we are at the very, very, very top of the hill. I feel like Powell has just kind of kicked the tiniest, you know, baseball sized snowball down the top of the hill. But I feel like in six months, 12 months, that the size of that snowball is going to be enormous. It'll be the size of a tractor, trailer, truck. And it'll be unstoppable at that point. And so everybody that's kind of happily celebrating the fact that markets haven't crashed. And I saw one of the other Fed officials today came out and said, you know, I think we're going to be able to avoid recession. It's like, motherfucker, we're already in a recession. You know, like (laughs) the idea that we're celebrating that the market hasn't totally tanked and that, you know, maybe we're going to be able to bypass a recession. Uh, I think is lunacy. I think it's typical Fed dumbassery. I mean, look at what happened in 2020 when the market crashed after COVID. We basically papered the whole market over by printing money and by, you know, offering stimulus checks and doing quantitative easing. So why wouldn't they think that they would be able to just kind of skate by here and uh, and you know, kind of engineer this soft landing? But, you know, in my opinion, I think the opposite is going to happen. I had written a couple of months ago that, look, I think we're due for a limit down morning, meaning I think we're going to wake up one day and this is all going to hit the market at once, similar to the way that COVID did, right? COVID wasn't a big deal until it was a big deal one day. You know, we went to bed on a fucking Tuesday or whatever and everything was fine. And then that Wednesday morning, we woke up and the market crashed because everybody had realized what we had all been talking about for weeks, which was that, you know, there was a big problem and we were going to have to make preparations for it. And we were we were so behind in dealing with it that, uh, you know, the market just got absolutely pasted. It got crushed. And I think the same thing is going to happen here just with credit markets. I think, you know, we're seeing all these little signs of liquidity drying up. And I think one day we're just going to wake up and it's going to be real. And I think, you know, as I've said before, the sell off for the most part, even since going back to, I guess, last November, so almost a year now, when inflationary pressures just started to poke their heads out and make themselves known a little bit. I mean, obviously, CPI wasn't at 9% at the time, but back in November, you know, was I remember I wrote the article about the NASDAQ kind of, uh, you know, it might be time to look down for the NASDAQ. And everything was kind of status quo. I remember writing that saying, ah, you know, I think I'm taking a, a risk here because everything was, uh, inflation wasn't a problem and Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. So we, there was really nothing like crazy going on. We were all just kind of, you know, it was a status quo. It was a normal day. Um, but since then, the sell-off has been for the most part orderly. Except what has changed is the landscape and and the market in my opinion has not reacted to the reality of what's going on and the reality of what's going on is not only is russia you know has russia gone into ukraine not only is there an energy crisis in europe and close to an energy crisis here in the united states not only is inflation at nine percent now not only are earnings going to fall off a cliff in the coming year. You know, tensions with China are the highest, I think, that they've been, at least that I can remember in recent memory. China really looks like they want to go into Taiwan at some point. It looks like it's just a matter of time. So, you know, we could have a situation where inflation's at, you know, 9%. China's going into Taiwan. Russia's going into Ukraine. Meanwhile, the BRIC nations are starting to challenge the U.S. dollar. They're starting to challenge the dollar's reserve status. They're starting to challenge the petrodollar. They're making nice with the Saudis. And you should go back and listen to my podcast with Andy Shechtman that I just did because he laid it out beautifully. The podcast before this one, if you haven't listened to it, you have the BRIC nations kind of solidifying their place together. Russia's doing business in Chinese Yuan. China's buying Russian oil assets. It's one big happy family over there. and uh, And here we are with very little productive capacity, uh, looking around and, and acting as if, you know, that's what we're doing. We're acting as if everything's fine. Meanwhile, you know, we have cities in the country that don't have potable drinking water and we're sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine to help them fight this war. And we're doing it as if we've got nothing to worry about, as if we are financially secure, as if we're a creditor nation as if we're certain that the dollar's reserve status is going to hold up. Um, and we're still acting very carelessly when it comes to fiscal and monetary policy. Fiscal policy, mostly right now. Monetary policy, they're trying to shore up. But we're acting as though nothing is wrong. And and here we are in what I think is you know one of the most precarious positions we've ever been in. So <clears throat> I think the stock market is going to have to reflect all of those negative variables that it hasn't priced in yet there, there's no way that anybody in their right mind looks at all that and looks at a shiller pe of 31 okay and says yeah this is a dip that i want to buy it's like this isn't a dip this is an insanely overvalued market that has pulled back you know 10 percent i mean i know we're not reliving the past but in bear markets of days past it wouldn't be uncommon for price to earnings ratios to get down to eight X, 10 X, you know, a PE of eight, a PE of 10. And right now we're at a PE of 30, you know, so by that, by that measure, you know, would it be completely unjustifiable for stocks to fall 60%? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, obviously the market always overshoots to the downside in the case of a, uh, you know, a massive bear market. But, um, you know, that's why I think that 20, 30, 40% lower from here, it shouldn't be off the table. And actually, in my opinion, I think is the most likely scenario. I just can't figure out the bull case, even if the Fed does say the Fed pivots. It's tough to put together a bull case to go in and start buying tech stocks here at PEs of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, wherever these tech stocks are, you know, and and say, all right, you know, it's time for the growth narrative because you still have all these major geopolitical risks. So I think that the rate hikes haven't been priced in. I think the rate hikes haven't hit the credit markets the way that they're going to. I think that we are underestimating the geopolitical risk right now. And I, I really do feel like we're turning the page into a new epoch of sorts. It feels like this is more than just a bump in the road. It feels like Putin picked his time to go into Ukraine, which I don't know what the circumstances were. He was watching the energy markets. Some people were saying last week, oh, it had to do with, you know, how much natural gas was available. I don't know if it had to do with Biden being president. I don't know if it had to do with him seeing the first signs of inflationary pressures, Certainly, Russia and China had been working on de-dollarizing for the last decade. But the point is, he picked his spot, and he picked it for a reason. And, uh, and really, what better time for China, if anywhere in its plan for the near future, if their plan was to try to retake Taiwan, what better time for them to do it than now? I mean politically we're a mess in this country financially we're a mess and uh, and I think that you know just putting aside the rate hikes say the the Fed pivots tomorrow and the stock market goes up you know 20 or 30% from here or 10 or 20% I still think it's a sell because I think the geopolitical risk and what's happening here with you know which really in essence in some ways we start You know, Russia goes into Ukraine. So what do we do? You know, we have two options. We can stay out of Russia's business in Ukraine or we could try to do what we got to do to help. And that's, you know, what we that's the path that we took. And by doing that, what did we do? We uh, we tried to sanction Russia and the economic sanctions ultimately wound up not really working because Russia just put the screws to Europe in terms of uh, energy and turned around and said to China, hey, let's reaffirm our long-standing partnership and uh, we can kind of help guide each other through this along with India and Saudi Arabia and Brazil. And that's what's been happening. So I think there's a fair amount of risk that the market hasn't priced in yet. I think that it's one of those situations where the headlines are out there, the information is out there. It's just that people haven't chosen to wake up to the reality of it yet. And who knows, you know, maybe heading into the holidays, uh, it'll happen again where we kind of wake up to the reality of what's going on and the market winds up, you know, getting shocked again. I do think that at some point, I don't even think it's worth having the discussion of, you know, is this a bear market? Is it a bull market? Is it time to buy until we see capitulation, which we haven't seen? You know, where are the five percent, six, seven, eight percent limit down days that we saw during COVID? I think, you know, arguably, this is a far more serious situation with wider ranging implications for the long term than COVID. And even if you just judge the two things on their face from the beginning. You know, what did COVID look like from day one when we knew nothing? And what does the Russia situation look like today from, you know, day one where we don't really know where that's going to wind up? I think that this is step one in a long line of steps that could have far reaching implications for the future. So I think to ignore that, um, you know, lest we forget, lest we forget $30 trillion in debt, That the country owes, in addition to all the other debt and unfunded liabilities, which, you know, when you add them up, it's something lovely like $100 trillion. You know, lest we forget, 200, 300 basis points uh, putting the screws to people on all of that debt all of a sudden out of nowhere. The housing market still hasn't really cooled off. I mean, it's come down a little bit, but I think it's going to have to come down a lot more. I think the housing market's essentially going to have to. Crash. Housing prices have been out of control. It started with, you know, the stimulus and the exodus out of cities. It put huge demand into the housing market because people wanted to get the fuck out of the cities. People wanted to buy in the suburbs. Housing prices went through the roof, you know, and housing is like the stock market. It's come off highs a little bit, but this isn't, you know, we're not even near. A trough. We're not near halfway. We're not 10% on our way to a trough in terms of the housing market. I mean, I think the housing market's going to have to collapse at some point. Um, you know, people are not going to want to take on mortgages at high rates because they're not going to have the income to pay for it. And people that have variable rate mortgages or adjustable rate mortgages now are going to wind up paying more every month. And so that is one of many bills that is going to become just a little bit more expensive to the average American as it was. When you couple that with the price of goods moving higher over the last, you know, eight months, 10 months, year, um, it's really going to start to put the screws to people. And then, you know, no more stimmies. So we've kind of burned through our savings. If you look at the personal savings rate, the country's burned through its savings and its burning through its credit cards right now and then what well then you have then you have no other options and that's when the rush to delever starts we got to sell assets to free up liquidity and when everybody hits the bid on any asset whether it's a house whether it's a car whether it's a fucking beanie baby whether it's a tulip everybody hits the bid at the same time everybody hits the exit at the same time then all of a sudden you're going to see the value of people's assets collapse, and that is going to uh, help perpetuate the cycle of uh, of just gnarly shit that is going to uh, make life a little bit more uncomfortable. So I think uh, I think we're still in for the worst of it going forward. You know I wrote an article a couple of days ago called "A Broken Clock Cries Wolf Twice a Day," and it's a play on all the fucking people. That continue to tell Austrian economists and skeptics and people who think that the market is going to move lower, and really anybody that thinks that we're heading for not great times ahead, because that's really what everybody's conditioned to think, right? Everything's going to be great, and we're going to be comfortable at all times, and that's just not the reality of things. That's just not how uh, that's not how nature works. It's not how economic systems work, uh, and it's just uh, it's a product of people's delusion. And being coddled too much. Uh, But that's another podcast for another day. The point is, you know, every time somebody on the Austrian side gets something right, people keep saying, oh, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And I especially resent people saying that Austrians are crying wolf, essentially, uh, when they raise the ideas that I just raised which is, you know, we could really be on the cusp of something way worse than people even imagine and way more profound with longer reaching and longer lasting implications than anybody else thought possible. We could be on the cusp of that right now. I mean, just again, look at the geopolitical picture. Look what's going on. Look at the uh, the consolidation of Russia and China, the BRIC nations now, Saudi Arabia, India, uh, and look at how precarious of a position our country is in. And I don't think it's that crazy to suggest that we are in the very early innings of a major shift in you know the global economic and geopolitical landscape. Now, is that the case? Maybe it isn't. Maybe everything will turn out to be okay like it always has done so far, right? The stock market has always, always gone up. The U.S. has always remained, you know, top dog for the most part. The U.S. dollar has kind of always remained top dog. um, And so maybe that will just continue. But is it really that irresponsible to be asking these types of questions right now? I mean, I can't think of a better time than now to be raising the idea that, hey, You know, we should be a little bit more humble. We should have a little bit more humility and a little bit less arrogance and hubris because we're really in a far more precarious position than we think. You know, we're really, you know, we fired our shot with these sanctions and it didn't work. And so where are we? You know, what what leverage do we have? You know, that doesn't involve the U.S. dollar right now. We're in this strange kind of precarious position and nobody really, I don't know if it's because it's too early or if because people are just, they're clouded by the idea that the U.S. is kind of always going to be the top dog or if people just don't see it, if they can't put the pieces together, but I think it takes a certain kind of ignorance to criticize people who are raising these important issues right now. Because uh, as I wrote, you know, hopefully I am wrong. Hopefully, you know, we're not at the beginning of some profound change in things and life will go on as normal and everybody can go back to drinking their Starbucks and, uh, you know, arguing with each other about uh, whatever the fuck people argue about politics, ideologies, etc. Maybe that'll be the worst of it. Hopefully I'm wrong. But isn't it a possibility that I'm right? (laughs) You know, isn't it a possibility now, given the circumstances and the situation, that we really are at this strange jumping off point? I don't know. You know, that Thomas Sowell quote that I put in my piece is, some of the biggest cases of mistaken identity are among intellectuals who have trouble remembering that they are not God. And that kind of rang true here. Right. I talk about this with monetary theory, uh, monetary policy all the time. You know, we basically we base monetary policy on this flawed idea that we're in control and we're always going to be in control. And there's never going to be a part of the economy that we can't micromanage. And there's never going to be a solution to kind of adjusting the free market to do whatever we want it to do. And that's just not the case. It's not in the laws of economics. It's not in the laws of nature. And so this Thomas Sowell quote really kind of rang true to me. Uh, Some of the biggest cases of mistaken identity are among intellectuals who have trouble remembering that they are not God. Right. And so we don't have, you know, the uh, we don't we're not in the driver's seat in the way that I think many people think that we are in this country. Um, I don't know if it's because they don't understand, you know, the economics. They don't understand the geopolitics, whatever. But uh, when you look at some of the decisions that Biden has been making, namely like this idea to pay off $10,000 per person in student debt, when you see something like that occur at a point when the nation is in the midst of an inflationary crisis, you're left to wonder, you know, is it that he just doesn't get it? Does he just not understand that the problem is we're doling out and printing too much money, and that all of this money is chasing up not enough goods, and so prices are going up. You know, th- th- we're inflating the money supply. Does he just not get it? And then I see all these calls for extra spending. By the way, not to mention the fact that every single day we get a new headline. That Biden has asked Congress for another billion, two billion, three billion to Ukraine. And so we're sending billions and billions of dollars over to Ukraine as if we have it. We don't have it. You know, we're a debtor nation. We're 30 trillion in debt. And we got fucking problems here that we need to fix. I understand the situation in Ukraine is a bad one. I'm not totally against, you know, helping out. But we have to be pragmatists about this. We can't just be doling out billions of dollars like they're fucking hostess cupcakes. You know, here you go. You have one and you have one and you have one. Just handing them out to our friends. You know, we don't have it to be handing it out like that. And it's baffling to me that we don't see that. You know, we're in, it's the same exact fucking thing that's happening with energy, right? The entire world is suffering from an energy crisis right now, exacerbated by what's going on in Russia. Germany's a great example, right? Germany can't keep the fucking lights on right now, but they won't turn on any of their recently decommissioned nuclear reactors. So the idea of, I don't know what, the idea of, you know, not using green energy, even though nuclear is green or the idea of avoiding the safety pitfalls of nuclear. And really it's the feelings, you know, governing by feelings instead of governing by logic, right? Hey, here, take 10,000 off your student loan. It feels good. Election day's coming up. You're gonna love me for it. Make sure you remember this at the polls. Same deal with Germany. Ah, nuclear's nasty, huh? Chernobyl, Fukushima, do I have to keep going? sir, we can't keep the fucking lights on. Yeah, but there's no way we can turn on these nuclear reactors again. And then they have other nuclear reactors that were set to be decommissioned. And I think they decided, uh, we'll keep two out of the three of them on, but only for emergencies. It's like, bitch, this is an emergency. Like what, what, what more of an emergency could you possibly ask for? People can't pay their electricity bills in Europe right now. And of course, everybody is coming up with the wrong solution to that. You have politicians organizing protests to try to get people to not pay their energy bills. Well, that's not going to solve the problem. I mean, it's going to be, what, a collective default by the people? Okay, well, you know, that's a nice thought. You won't have to pay the bill, I guess. Sure, it'll damage your credit and whatever else, but uh, did you not think about the fact that they're going to turn your fucking electricity off if you don't pay? Like, have we thought more than one or two iterations here forward and what's going to happen when they turn everybody's electricity off for not paying the bill? Well, everybody's going to riot. So we're like two steps away from major civil unrest, all because we can't figure out the most pragmatic solution, even though it is literally bludgeoning us in the face with a baseball bat. I don't know what the hell to do about that. What am I supposed to do? You know, if, if the politicians over there can't figure out that nuclear power is a solution that works now when the entire, you know, continent is in an energy crisis and the lights are going off, if they can't, and people are refusing to pay their bills I mean, if they can't figure it out now, what's it going to take? I don't fucking know. I saw a headline this morning. The U.S. is going to talk to Poland about nuclear energy. Okay, good. Guess a good step in the right direction. But then, you know, two steps forward, one step back. I just saw a headline earlier this afternoon that Joe Biden says we have plenty of other options on the table to deal with a feared spike in energy prices. And of course, what are those options? What what was the next headline that ran right after that? Options include releasing more petroleum from the strategic petroleum reserve. <laughs> very strategic. Very well thought out. Well, it's exactly what we've been doing and we're going to run out of petroleum in the reserve at some point. And then what? You know? Then what's going to happen? Then where where does it, you know, then we go to price caps, which is a great way to cut off supply, you know, (laughs) it's a great disincentivizer to people that produce the energy to keep producing it. Because if energy companies aren't getting, you know, what they need to get price-wise for energy in order to maintain a margin, they're just going to stop producing it or they'll start laying off. They're going to have to cut costs at some point. I mean, and so the solution is to just bring more energy online bring more supply online. It's not that hard. Well, how do you do that? Well, you incentivize, you know, energy companies to bring on more supply. And you consider things like nuclear at a time like this. I mean, I, you know, when you govern with feelings instead of with logic and reason, you're going to wind up in these types of situations. And the only thing up in the air now is whether or not we can unfuck our thinking enough to come up with a solution. Right. It's like this woman who this uh, woman, Uju Anya, who is a uh, professor at Carnegie Mellon in the Department of Modern Languages. That's her uh, title. She tweeted today, you know, that the, the queen died earlier today, uh, which is, you know, tragedy when anybody dies and in uh, a sad day for people that are like into the royalty stuff. Um, which yeah, you know, I never was, but I don't like to see people die ninety six though good fucking run eh ninety six so this woman, who is the head of the Department of Modern Language at Carnegie Mellon, tweets out the following quote: I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating now again. This is a great example. And what I tweeted was, look, this is what happens to your brain when you sit around reading Jacques Derrida all day, you know, deconstruction of words, and you wind up trying to figure out the meaning of a 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 fucking semicolon placed somewhere in a text. You know, when you sit around and you write dissertations on that all day, it's no wonder you lose touch with fucking reality and your brain turns into a bowl of, you know, mashed potatoes. Okay, I can understand that. But so far off the path that you want to say may her pain be excruciating? I mean, look, I understand. Colonizers, I get it, okay? Let's just say, wouldn't the right thing to do here, though, wouldn't the the taking the high road that uh you know the left is supposed to do when they when they go low we go high wouldn't taking the high road be to say something like you know the queen's death marks the end of a you know a chapter in history and now maybe healing can begin and we can turn the page that would be like something if you if you don't want to say rest in peace or, you know, sorry to see the queen die or something. Maybe you could tweet something like that. But to say, may her pain be excruciating. The woman's 96 fucking years old. May her pain be excruciating. It just goes to show you the mindset of people that let their feelings and their emotions do the deciding for them. And I don't even know if this woman understands. You know, maybe she thinks this is justified. Maybe she thinks if the Queen suffers, it'll be reparations for everything terrible that's happened in history. Uh, Okay, do I understand that a lot of people suffered over the course of history? Yes. Do I understand that a large amount of injustices took place? Yes, I do. But the year is 2022, okay? And i just like to think that many activists that have come before this woman in many, you know, over the course of history, many activists, including one Martin Luther King himself advocate would have never advocated for something like that would have advocated for nonviolence, right? And would have said something with a little bit more. So the point is, when you let your your emotions, you know, which her emotions, I don't know, they're they're running high. Maybe it's personal. Maybe I don't understand her suffering. Maybe I never will. But to come out and say something like that and to not turn on a fucking nuclear reactor when it can help solve an obvious problem that your country's having. Two good examples of what happens when you let your feelings and your emotions do your decision making for you instead of uh, logic and reason, because there's a nicer way to say that. And uh, I guess, you know, when you sit around trying to figure out postmodern nonsense all day, uh, I can understand how, uh, just walking outside your front door can be a huge shock and the whole world can be scary. Hey, the whole world is scary to me and I don't even sit around reading fucking Derrida all day. I read Derrida in college because I was an English major. It didn't make a fucking lick of sense to me. I mean, it wasn't that I couldn't understand what he was trying to argue and put forth. It was just a mess I mean, it was great because it's all interpretation. So I was able to, you know, write a bunch of papers and basically just make shit up and give my opinion on things, you know, and it was regarded as like, oh, this is a great analysis. I'm like, yeah, all right. That's what happens when you, uh, you know, eat a bag of mushrooms, drink six Coronas and then try to give your uh, interpretation of some narrative that you read, you know, I broke it down because the fucking, the letter Q was talking to me in a certain way. And the little squiggly thing on the end was curling upward. I don't know if I was hallucinating or whatever. Oh, that's great. What an incredible, astute analysis of this narrative, which is about, you know, fucking donuts in Belgium, right? Like (laughs) the fuck is anybody talking about? Anyways, sad day. Sad to see the queen go. The market, I think, is going to get smacked here at some point. And let me just see if there's anything else that I want. Oh, I did want to cover COVID real quick because um, Richard Ebright, who is a Rutgers uh, University chemistry professor and, in fact, is the Board of Governors Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Rutgers University and Laboratory Director at the Waxman Institute of Microbiology. He has a uh, degree from Harvard, a little community college up near Boston, and he also has a PhD from that little community college called Harvard up (laughs) up in Cambridge, Mass., or wherever the fuck it is, uh, Ebright tweets out this thread this week, basically laying out the case for the lab leak and putting together the chronology of things that happened that would pretty much explain a lab leak to a T. Uh, so much so that, you know, another PhD from Princeton that read his analysis said, quote, this evidence is not dispositive. But were the lab leak hypothesis incorrect, it would represent a staggering set of coincidences. And that was uh, Justin B. Kinney who wrote that. He was an associate, is an associate professor at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory and a Princeton PhD, another small community college that nobody's ever heard of. But um, Ebright comes out and just lays it out. Now, if you've listened to like the Jamie Metzl um, podcast on, uh, uh, Lex Friedman's podcast. If you can, if you can deal with Lex Friedman for four hours, I love Lex Friedman, but sometimes I have trouble listening to him for four hours. I just want him to get angry. You know, he stays so calm. I just want to be like, dude, will you just curse, get pissed off about something? He just stays monotone the whole time. I can't even do an impression of him because it would require me to take all the emotion out of my voice, which I can't do, but Hey, he's a balanced black belt. From uh, Balance here in Philadelphia, he's got my respect. Having said that, if you haven't listened to the Jamie Metzl um, podcast with him, it's from like December 2021, uh, you should listen to it. He lays out a lot of this too. But Ebright puts up this thread, and I just want to read it to you. And before I do, up front, let me remind you that everybody said lab. You know, when this whole thing went down, Everybody said, oh, the seafood market's there. That's nice. But also, you know, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is 500 yards down the road. You can fucking see it from where the guy was selling, you know, raw fish at the fish market. The fucking thing's right there, right? But there's even more coincidences than that. So, by the way, everybody that came out and said that, that suggested the lab. And I need to, you don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to be a fucking cartographer. Just need common sense. The virus was found here the lab is here. Maybe we should look there first. That was the extent of my research. You know, four seconds thinking with my fucking chimpanzee brain and my double-digit IQ, and I came up with, maybe we should check the lab first. Now, there's all this insane evidence that, I mean, it's all circumstantial, but when taken together, its it certainly is a lot to ignore. Um, So Ebright wrote this thread on Twitter last week that I want to read it to you. He said, uh, A pandemic caused by a bat SARS-like coronavirus emerged in Wuhan, a city a thousand miles from nearest wild bats with SARS-like coronaviruses, but that contains labs conducting the world's largest research program on bat SARS-like coronaviruses. (laughs) He then noted that in 2015 to 2017, scientists and science policy specialists had expressed concern that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was conducting and contemplating research that posted an unacceptable risk of lab accident and pandemic. So they weren't operating at the uh, highest safety levels that they were supposed to to conduct such research. They had a, a collaboration with the French. Then the, some of the French people backed out. The Metzl podcast goes into deep, uh, depth more on that if you want to listen to it. In 2017, 2018, the Wuhan Institute of Virology constructed a novel chimeric SARS-like coronavirus that was able to infect and replicate in human airway cells and that had 10,000 times enhanced viral growth and four times enhanced lethality in mice engineered to display human receptors on cells. He then says, right, so they just make this nasty fucker in a lab is basically what he just said they took fucking a coronavirus and they put it on fucking juice like fucking McGuire hitting a hundred home runs in a season. Then he points out how an NIH grant proposal focused on novel spike genes with higher binding affinities in 2018 in an NIH grant proposal. This was a proposal that was made to the national institutes of health. The Wuhan Institute of virology and collaborators proposed To construct more novel chimeric SARS-like coronaviruses, targeting chimeras that replace natural spike gene with novel spike genes encoding spikes that have higher binding affinities to human cells. So they went to the NIH and said, this is what we want to do. Basically, we want to make something just like COVID. And then a DARPA grant proposal from 2018, and Metzl notes that DARPA is like the uh, VC arm of, uh, of the government, right? Uh, A DARPA proposal from 2018, which was ultimately rejected, by the way, uh, to construct bat SARS-like coronaviruses. Uh, The grant proposal, it was the Wuhan Institute of Virology and Collaborators. They proposed to construct novel consensus bat-like coronaviruses. Ahem. and to insert furring cleavage site sequences at the spike gene S1-S2 border of bat SARS-like coronaviruses. Now, what does that all mean? It means they fucked with it in a very specific way. And by the way, that's the exact way that COVID has been fucked with. So when people look at COVID, it matches essentially what was in these grant proposals, right? And even though the grant was rejected. Uh, Metzl speculates that the Wuhan Institute of Virology just decided they were going to do this research anyways. Um, Also in, uh, all right, from 2017 to 2019, the... Institute was constructing and characterizing viruses at a biosafety level that was patently inadequate. And this is another thing Metzl talks about. You know, it's a biosafety level two lab, and they should have been biosafety level four or something else to be doing what they were doing. So they were doing it in unsafe conditions. And then all of a sudden, by the way, COVID pops up with the same characteristics referenced in both grants. Uh, Ebrite says, quote, In 2019, a novel SARS-like coronavirus, having a spike with high binding affinity for human cells, like we just said, and having a fur and cleavage site at the spike S1-S2 border, which we just said, a virus having the property set forth in the 2018 NIH and DARPA grant proposals, emerges on the doorstep of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Folks, fucking close the fucking books on this one. I mean, Friedman calls it a smoking gun when they do that interview. Close the fucking books on this one. I mean, what are we still debating? Ebright writes, SARS-CoV-2 is only one of more than 100 known SARS-like coronaviruses that contain a uh, FCS fern cleavage site. This is a feature that does not rule out a natural origin, but that is more easily explained by a lab origin, especially since insertion of fur and cleavage sites had been explicitly proposed in 2018. In 2020 to present, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and its funders slash collaborators at EcoHealth Alliance have withheld information, misrepresented facts, and obstructed investigation, even though if not connected to origin, they could most easily clear their name through cooperation and investigation. Folks, that's not me saying that. That's fucking Richard Ebright, PhD from Harvard, bachelor's from Harvard, current professor at Rutgers. This isn't me speculating over a Pap's Blue Ribbon at my local bar here in Philadelphia. This is a guy that understands what the fuck he's talking about. So this is like case closed, you know, and then we have this eco health alliance, by the way, which was uh, part and parcel with these grants and this guy, Peter Dazik, And we know from the um, FOIA request that Fauci and a couple of these guys are talking about the idea that this might be man-made right off the bat. And then Daszak comes out in The Guardian and writes this thing that, hey, everybody knows it's from natural origin, so let's not start with a bunch of conspiracy theories, because obviously he's trying to cover his ass. So what a fucking mess. What an absolute mess. And then, you know, on the Freeman podcast, they go into this big debate about whether or not Fauci lied about, uh, you know, funding gain-of-function research and, you know, what does funding mean? Did he fund it directly, indirectly? The point is these guys knew from the get-go this probably came out of the lab and they continued to push this nonsense and push a narrative, which I don't even really care about. What I care more about is the idea that if you spoke out about it and you brought up what, to me, was a common-sense solution then and now seems to be a irrefutable solution. You were labeled a fear monger, a conspiracy theorist. You were kicked off social media. People were fucking like, you know, and so now the question going forward is, okay, well, what will we find out in two years, three years, four years about the lockdowns, about masks, about the vaccines? You know, what's going to come of all this going forward? Because man, they were hell bent on keeping a narrative. And so it should be very interesting to see how much of the things that they swore by they wind up having to walk back. Of course, nobody will pay for it. There will be no consequences, as there never is. But it sure will be easy. I mean, it sure will be uh, interesting to take note of where this narrative stands in a year or two from now. Because now Fauci has even walked back and said, well, we have to kind of consider all different possibilities. It's like, oh, okay. Because We were labeled conspiracy theorists two years ago for even suggesting that the coronavirus came out of a lab where they were doing research on coronaviruses. It's just insane. It's insanity. And uh, I don't know. You know, when people ask me why my blog is called Fringe Finance and why I like to tackle subjects on the fringe, it's because, look, a lot of times they're wrong, but they have to be explored and they have to be talked about because they're not wrong all the time. Sometimes they're right. And when you know in advance, well, you know it helps prepare you financially. It helps prepare you uh, to be a better person in your community. It helps prepare you for the safety and security of your family, and uh, you know gives you a leg up on on what's what. And so that's why I think batting around the fringe topics. And by the way, the whole thing about Russia and the stock market and everything I talked about, I don't even think that's fringe. I think that's the likely leading scenario. Just like the Wuhan Institute of Virology was two years ago. I just think it hasn't come to fruition in the public discourse and in people's minds yet. And just like this lab leak theory, very soon, I think it will. So if you haven't read it, my blog's called Fringe Finance, quote the The link is in my podcast description. Thank you guys so much. I'm sorry about the delay. I had a podcast guest cancel on me. Um, But I should be back at a relatively regular clip now. Thank you to my sponsors for hanging in with me. I love you guys so much. All right, fools. I'm out of here. Peace.